Welcome to the Football by Football Podcast. And welcome back to the Football by Football Podcast. This is College Football Breakdown, and I'm your host, Matt Chatham, joined as always by Brady Quinn. Brady, how you doing, man? I'm doing well, Matt. Just looking forward to uh, a few more matchups this week. We're, we're kind of starting to see um, some separation between some of the uh, contenders and pretenders, right? Yeah, that's that's what they say. And uh, one of those, uh, I guess, the top contenders, we'll put them right there on the edge, is your old school. And, you know, I, I have a bias here. I work for... I work for the New England Sports Network, and we that that station does all the broadcasts for the the Red Sox. So uh, I'm around Fenway quite a bit, and and you get to see the place, and uh, it's it's all dressed in in blue and gold. It's really weird right now because your Irish are coming for the Shamrock Series to play uh, Boston College. Clearly, a game that's a little off the national scene as far as implications for this playoff, but. Uh, we talked about it in past shows about what it's like to play in cool venues, but the the thing that struck me as new now that I hadn't seen before is we always knew Notre Dame was coming to Fenway, coming to visit and play Boston College, but the idea that they were the home team <laughs> hadn't really registered <laughs> until I started seeing the Green Monster get plastered with with these murals from Notre Dame. What an unusual situation. Yeah, it, it's it's definitely weird. It's, um, you have to find it kind of neat, though, the fact that Notre Dame is willing to play an additional home game somewhere else. I mean, essentially, you're talking about neutral field. I mean, yeah, they have the opportunity to pick the site, but it's obviously not Notre Dame Stadium. Um, there will be a number of fans there who support Notre Dame, but at the same time, I mean, it's right there in Fenway Park. Boston College is going to have just as much of an opportunity as Notre Dame does to fill that stadium uh, they're in Fenway, and they've done this a number of times throughout the years, but I think it's pretty neat that they give the players just the opportunity to play in a very historical place uh, like Fenway Fenway you know, Park, I guess. Um, it's, it's, it's something that's pretty cool. I wish I would have had the opportunity to do that back when I played at Notre Dame. Yeah, it's and again, I'm probably diving too much into the stereotypes here, but you know, good Irish Catholic guy grows up in in South Boston. You know, wants to go to BC, attends Boston College. Maybe he's an athlete, gets to play for the Eagles, and in your backyard, Notre Dame's taken. I don't know. It just it has like a it has a sort of make your skin crawl if you're really into that. Now I'm not, but I, I've I've talked to some locals. <laughs> over the course of the last week and it it feels a little bit like an invasion i mean obviously there are only a couple really big what heralded sort of catholic schools in the country obviously notre dame being the the most uh notorious is the wrong word but the most well known uh boston college kind of has that little brother syndrome relative to notre dame and for them to come in and sort of take over their digs it just has a let's put it this way for what otherwise would be a, a a game that wouldn't mean a whole lot if this were in chestnut hill uh, it gives it a little more juice. I think it, it it takes this local market that usually doesn't care a ton about college football. It's just the oddity that is up in the Northeast, or they're more into the NFL stuff. But I think it adds some intrigue. I think downtown Boston's buzzing a little bit with this game coming up this weekend, and, and for that, it's a cool thing. All right, but we're going to move on here to the college playoff. You know that that's that's obviously the biggest piece of news each and every week. We all wait till Tuesday nights come, and we get our little – present to open and this week was no different than any other we have our third edition uh and again we're already on this topic of notre dame i'll lead with this with you and we know where notre dame sits they, they were they crept in a week ago they sit there again now 
One of the things that's popping in my head now, and actually heard Joe Klatt, who was uh, your buddy there from Fox, who, who made a pretty compelling argument for some of the stuff that he considers head scratchers in the Big 12. Uh, they still kind of sit on the outside of this thing. Uh, the one thing that I noticed, though, is, is Notre Dame still sits below Alabama. And his argument, Joe's arguing on behalf of Oklahoma a little bit, from my, at least my understanding of it, what it, where it was coming from. One of the things I was to, would love to th- sort of throw at you is, how do you reconcile, or are you okay with, uh, where Notre Dame sits relative to the other one-loss team in this thing? Uh, they sit behind Alabama. Alabama sits above them. Uh, Oklahoma sits behind them. Those would be your three, you know, best case uh, for, for how they played kind of schools out there that have one loss. If the season ended tomorrow and Alabama sat with that one loss with an SEC championship, they're usually going to win that argument because Notre Dame just can't match that because of their schedule and not being at a conference. But in the absence of that, just based on who they played, do you agree with Notre Dame and or Oklahoma sitting behind Alabama? Well, look, here's what basically Joel Klatt tried to make an argument for. He wanted to make an argument for Oklahoma being ahead of Notre Dame because of Notre Dame at the current point in time being – Loosely affiliated with the ACC, um, every other sport in Notre Dame besides football is considered to be within right. the ACC. And then Notre Dame has agreed to play, if I'm not mistaken, one, two, three, four, five, six, six games versus ACC opponents. So this season thus far, um, assuming that they beat Boston College and Fenway, um, they would right. have won five of those six games, only losing one game to Clemson, who Oh, might I add, is most likely going to be uh, the ACC <laughs> champ and number one in the ranking right now. So right. his comment was, why should Notre Dame be ranked ahead of a one-loss Big 12 team that very well could win the Big 12? And my response would be, well, you're also discounting the fact that, one, Notre Dame plays USC and Stanford. Why is that significant? Because essentially both those teams could be the Pac-12 North and Pac-12 South division champions. So essentially you'd be saying Notre Dame would be the essential Pac-12 champ by beating both of those teams. They've already beat USC this year. They still have to beat Stanford in two weeks. So to me, Joel Klatt is bringing forth an argument that he can try to make it loosely affiliated with the ACC, even though Notre Dame is dependent. But let's look at the common opponents, right? Because that's part of the criteria that Notre Dame brings to the table, or excuse me, the college football playoff brings to the table. Who's the common opponent between Oklahoma and Notre Dame? Texas. What's the difference? Notre Dame beat them 38-3 to at home. Oklahoma lost to them. That's actually their only loss. So if you're going right. to sit here and try to compare the two schedules, or even strength of schedule for that matter, it's not even close. In fact, it's ridiculous when you look at the overall strength of schedule compared to it. Notre Dame ranks 27th in the country right now. Oklahoma's ranks 46th. If you're going to make a case for the Big 12, make it for an undefeated team in Oklahoma State. I mean, they at least haven't lost yet, so they could very well be that team that ends up winning the Big 12 with an undefeated record. Then you've got 12-0 versus 11-1. That would make an argument. But Joel Klatt has no basis for this. It almost seems as if he's trying to drum up some attention just because it's Notre Dame, and everyone knows that whenever you talk about Notre Dame, it gives you clicks. Well, I wondered uh... – 
I, and I agree that I, I, I it was kind of odd, and I guess maybe I just didn't catch this part of it. And I wasn't trying to make it into an anti Joe Clad segment, but but I I did I guess I didn't realize he was directing an argument so much at Notre Dame. I think there's a much more compelling argument aimed at Alabama, not Notre Dame. I think Notre Dame has a relatively bulletproof case, as you mentioned, especially because they're they're ostensibly taking a round robin approach. As you mentioned, they're playing some of the packs best. What, what we presume if you're to project out a week or two from now, uh, they're quite likely playing the best on each side of that bracket. And then they're, they're beating what's left of, of the ACC as well. So I think, I think the Notre Dame's case sits quite well, especially since their one loss can't be any worse than anyone's one loss because it's to the team that's number one. So I guess the one that if I was, if I was of sort of, uh, you know, blue blood, Big 12, Big 8 kind of guy uh, living down south, I would be a little more concerned with why the SEC just gets sort of presumed into that spot. Now, if I'm doing eye test, I put I put Alabama there. I do, because I think they've looked exceptional the last several weeks. But that said, resume-wise, I don't necessarily think it should just be presumed that they're there. Actually, more so to Alabama – or I'm sorry, to Notre Dame's case than Oklahoma's. But I think Oklahoma's at least has a neck-and-neck case with Alabama. I don't think Ole Miss, Ole Miss is that good. I think they're okay. I think they're a ranked team, but they're the back end of the 25 as opposed to Clemson, as you mentioned. But, you know, Texas is obviously a knock that Oklahoma doesn't want on that schedule. But, but here's the thing. Like, we're trying to, one, rank these teams and give an idea of, of what we feel is the best top four teams in the country, which is difficult, right, during the, during the midst of it all because, like, the Big right. 12 this weekend, you know, they've got a ton of games to be played. They've got Oklahoma State and Baylor. They've got Oklahoma versus TCU. So that's going to help us, you know, clear up this picture a little bit. But let's just look at this, for example, right, because we have had some instances where the SEC has played the Big 12. For example, Texas Tech beat the snot out of Arkansas, who Arkansas just beat LSU, who is ranked, if I'm not mistaken at this point, somewhere in the teens of the college football playoff, maybe 14. I mean, what does that say then? Like a middle-of-the-road Big 12 team beat the snot out of a team in Arkansas who just beat the number 13 or 14 team in the country. I mean, And I believe Arkansas – Oh, I was go just going to say, I think I, I believe I believe Arkansas lost to Toledo as well, <laughs> just to throw that out there. But go ahead and finish. Yeah, your no, point. but 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 my point is this: is like there's a lot more parity in college football. I, I actually think it's a lot harder to sit there and say one conference is much greater than the other, because as you pointed yeah. out, the MAC was even able to beat this SEC opponent in Arkansas, who then beat one of the top opponents of the SEC West in LSU, who is number 15 in the poll this week. So it's incredibly difficult to discern who should be more worthy, which conference is better than the other. So if that's going to be the case, then I think we should go ahead and just look at all the Power Five, all the FBS opponents that these, these teams play the same. And then that's another thing that kind of bothers me is, you know, someone, and obviously this is, this is Twitter, which is the brilliant uh, part about Twitter. <laughs> someone, always, exactly. someone always brings up some dumb comment, right? Like they said, well, Notre Dame's only win over a Power 5 opponent is USC, who's ranked in the top 25 this week. They're 7-3. and three, They've got a loss, but they're still in contention yeah. for possibly in the Pac-12. Well, my response to them then is, but look, they've beat Navy, right, who's sitting there at um, number, what, 17 uh, this week or, or 16 in the pool this yeah, week. Yeah, some of the range, yeah. Um, yeah, they, they also beat you know Temple, who was a top 25 ranked team as well. They'll eventually have to play Stanford as well. 
Pittsburgh was ranked in the top 25 at one point in time. Actually, I think when they actually played them, they were. Um, they'll, they'll play a number of teams that are within them, but everyone's so concerned about, you know, how many teams they play within the Power Five. The Power Five is irrelevant. The Power Five, to me, doesn't matter if you can have teams like Houston, who's sitting at 10-0 and right now within the top 25, right. or a team like Navy, who's not within that conference, and it's, it's sitting at number 16 in the pools right now. People want to act like the Power Five carries some sort of weight or have some sort of significance, but really it's just FBS opponents. I mean, I think we've seen it this year. You know, Memphis as one of those teams in the American Conference, Temple we talked about, Houston we talked about. I mean, those are three pretty solid teams who have kind of been back and forth in the top 25. Somebody needs to give some credit to that particular conference, which essentially used to be Conference USA, but just the, the fact that they're an FBS opponent. They're a legitimate opponent. They, they've proven why they should be ranked in the top 25 and why they are working towards more consideration for being one of those top teams that eventually plays in a 14 playoff or maybe an 18 playoff one day. Well, I think we're at the point, Brady, and you may not agree with this, but I think we're at the point where some of the top teams in some of those next five conferences are as good as the Vanderbilts of the world. I mean, if, if, if Houston or Memphis played in that conference, I'm not claiming that they would win any of these power five conferences, but I think they would compete every good, every, every bit as much as Purdue would, or as Vanderbilt would, or as maybe even Louisville this year, you know, in the ACC, uh, some Syracuse, there, there's a lot of schools out there that make up the bottom half of these power five conferences that Wake Forest, that, that I think pretty, pretty uh, evidence is something that's been evidence, not just my opinion, because there's enough common opponents that you can go out there and find them that those wins should count as positive those aren't this isn't charleston southern like the sec is doing this week this is those are legitimate games now and i i i the one thing it sort of brings up in my head and we've been debating this for years uh on other programs but this idea that that i always try to figure out where they come up with that initial rankings i'm not talking about the, the college football playoff rankings but sort of the start the season stuff and when these things happen and we get you know, only six, seven, eight games in and you see where people have fallen and the, and the resumes are still pretty thin. Everyone's are maybe one team, one or two teams out there has that really golden win, but some of the teams have the, the pile up stuff at the end of the year. It makes me think that they continually revert back. This thing by virtue of being in the sec, you're presumed higher, you know, and, and each year we peel away the old miss and the Mississippi States and then the L- you know, LSU this year, Georgia, a lot of years, but they always get a, a, a earlier start spot. <laughs> but a lot of that, I think, is maybe the recruiting rankings or just past seasons, bowls or something like that. But it looks like this year, especially as the rankings sit today, and I think this is what I, at least the part of what Joe was arguing that registered, registered with me a little bit more. It appears that the Big 12 is just by proxy, and maybe part of part of it being that they weren't in the playoff last year because they didn't have they, they didn't have their, their one true champion thing or whatever, and they didn't have anyone in the four. It looks to me that that the big 12 is considered behind the sec. It's just, you know, that's, they're just not them. And if they, they played, if they played nothing but sec school, sec schools and the big 12 played nothing but big 12 schools, there's enough of a, a contingent on that committee that they would keep the sec schools higher. Is that fair? You know, it's tough because what you're doing, Matt, is you're opening up a whole can of worms. Like, there is a conspiracy theory that actually Joel Platt did bring up as well. Um, stating that, you know, committee members like a guy like Barry Alvarez, um, who was an old Big Ten coach, um, yeah, of course. Has, a lot of, has a lot of persuasion in that room amongst the committee. And when, when they're sitting there talking about teams, a lot of people look to his opinion very highly. And they feel like he is actually able to tip the scale in favor of 
teams that run the football effectively, teams that have time of possession, teams that have good defense. Um, they okay. kind of, or, or I should say they, but also a guy like Joel Klatt would say that that's actually one of the people who helps kind of uh, push the committee in one direction or another. So I don't necessarily know if that's the case. Um, I think what happens is we see these drastic swings from, you know, one ranking to another based on the fact that, look, there's an eye test, right? Like we watch Alabama and we go, right. they're probably playing as the best football team in the country right now. I mean, does anyone doubt that, the right. way they've been able to blow through opponents like Mississippi State uh, and the likes of Georgia, et cetera? I mean, they've been dominating teams. But you look at Ole Miss and you go, well, Ole Miss isn't bad either, even though they lost to them, so that kind of makes sense. But then Ole Miss loses to Memphis. And you go, right. come on, that's an American conference. And Memphis loses to Navy. And you go, well, come on, how does that make any sense? So, so – all of a sudden, you start to look at you know the, the teams that they lost to, and you start to look at really the conference as a whole. And you just, I think everyone's starting to believe right now. To your point earlier, that there's much more parity in these conferences. You know, I, I would go on a, go on a limb and say, I don't know too many teams that would want to schedule Houston right now. You know, they're ten and zero. You look at their strength of schedule. They're like the strength of schedule is ranked at 111th in the country, right? But I'll tell you what. There's a few teams who want to take on Tom Herman, their new head coach, who was the OC at Ohio State last year. There's a few teams who want to take on that passing attack and be able to handle that. Right. So I, I, uh, I think there's just more parity all the way around. But I think until the final ranking set, you know, these committee members are still trying to really steal everything out at this point. One of the things, and again, I always try to inject as much sort of playerness as, as we can into these things. One of the things that, that that excites me just from sort of the change element, and, you know, there's places in the world like Notre Dame, and you went to one of them, so you know what it's like, you know, on one of the big blue bloods of all of college football, all of really colleges and universities in the country as a whole. That's one of the places, right? But obviously the University of Houston is not considered one of those. You know, the University of Central Florida, not considered one of those. Uh, but some of these places that have ha- really high enrollment and have a big donor base uh, that are metropolitan schools, it, it's kind of exciting to me sometimes when a place like Houston starts to get some money flowing in and starts to get some local interest. They just built a new stadium there. It's a nice new facility. You can even look to TCU and Baylor. Obviously, those are privates and smaller schools. But when new money m- moves into places like that and you can make sort of a financial argument that, hey, the facilities are just the same here now. We, we get 45,000 people a game in our games now, too. You know, those kinds of things. Uh, and you have some 17-year-old kid who doesn't know what you and I know about you know, Michigan and, and Notre Dame and even Florida State and the U and Miami. Like, none of that stuff might even register with a kid that's growing up in, in, in you know, downtown Houston right now. So it, it's kind of fun sometimes when a kid that doesn't know all those sort of historical things and could care less and wants to go to a school like that, and then he thrives. And it does, again, it doesn't happen across the board. They still have – UT in Austin with all that money and a TV station, all those kinds of things. And uh, these other schools in America are never going to be able to match that. But it is kind of exciting to me when they can kind of rock the cradle a little bit uh, and even the playing field a little bit by having some nicer facilities and, you know, not playing in a place like Rice that's just a, a stadium that held uh, cotton bowls 40 years ago. And it's just a big concrete bowl. Some of these places are updating themselves and I think making it a little easier for them to have us have these conversations say, hey, bet they're not that much different. I think it's a number of things. I think you look at college football right now, and 
let's look at some of the teams that have really gone through multiple conferences and been able to make that transition. I mean, look at TCU, a point. Uh, school that was in that was in the WAC, Mountain West, um, then finally came to the Big 12. And what was right. part of their success was the fact that one, they had a consistency at the coach coaching position in Gary Patterson, but two. It was the fact that Gary Patterson changed the way in which he goes to recruit players now, Matt. Gary Patterson looks at players, and he really just tries to find athletes. And he would sit there and say to a kid, I want you to come to our school, but you're not going to be playing quarterback. You're going to be playing safety. Or he'd tell a safety, you know what, you could probably maybe try to go to other schools and sit on the bench for a few years, and maybe you'll get a chance to play. But I can tell you this, I'll bring you in right away. We'll put you in the weight room. We'll put on 20 pounds, and you'll be one of our best linebackers. He essentially takes players who are good athletes that can run, and then he teaches them how to play defense. He puts them in the right positions on offense. He, he, he actually did something that I don't, I don't think he would have ever done at any other point in his career besides last season and bring in two guys, and Doug Meacham and Sonny Cumbie, an offensive coordinator, who like to run this air raid system. They like to spread it out and throw the football right. around the field. But part of that intrigue, Matt, it was to bring in guys that could get those recruits. Because part of that intrigue is we want to play an offense where we're going to touch the football. We want to play an offense where we're going to get 80 to 90 snaps a game. We've got a quarterback who can spread the football around, and everyone now is a part of it. We're going to rotate in wide receivers. We're going to run this fast-paced, big-play offense where we can recruit eight wide receivers because I can honestly tell you eight wide receivers are going to play every game. They're going to touch the ball <laughs> right, every game. Right, I mean, right, you, right. you start to look at the stats on these teams, Matt, there's, there was a stat I just looked at for UCLA. They returned seven wide receivers who had 20-plus catches from last season, this season alone. Think about that. I mean, that's not that significant, but that was like the seventh guy had a minimum of 20 catches last season. That means he's getting yeah. at least one to two catches a game, and he's your seventh right. wide receiver. And that's, that's remarkable. Right. That's the era we're in now. Right. Um, so, so I think it's a matter of coaches being very good at uh, being able to take players out of high school, change them in uh, into different positions, get them in the weight room, build up that bulk that they need to get, and then make them into great players on the opposite side of the football. But also, these offensive systems now, it's leveled the playing field, being able to get athletes to go from a school where they may only play two years, at, where now they can be a starter as a freshman and have a big impact in their entire collegiate career. Yeah, and I, you bring up one of the, the most obvious and I think a great, great example there in TCU. And, and this isn't so much trying to sort of change or manipulate who they were or what they were, but watching Missouri lead the Big 12 and head to the SEC, watching, Tex, or watching Texas A&M do the same thing and have success really sort of helps that sort of bridge argument happen that, hey, it's really not so different. I can be over here and a year or two from now I can be over there and I'll still play football and we'll still win. We'll still recruit and get guys. If anything, it might even help our recruiting a little bit. But uh, both Missouri and A&M have obviously taken steps back a few years, so it's probably not the best. <laughs> that's not the perfect timing to be having this conversation. But it, it's, they certainly didn't go, go over there and get walked through. And I think that was helpful for everyone. In the event, obviously, in some oddball situation that, you know, Notre Dame joined the Big Ten. And I understand that's that's not going to happen. But uh, I don't think Notre Dame walks in and their their annual record changes much at all. Uh, it might even stay – you know, it can't get better because they're only losing to Clemson as it is. But I think they would continue to compete at the same level. And I think there's a lot of examples around in football where you could take the very best conference from 
from the American, the very best team for our best team from the American, very best team potentially from even the Mac and sit them in the back end of, of some of these power conferences. And I don't think they'd get beaten as badly as people think. And I think they'd recruit better and eventually move up um, for, for time purposes here though. We do need to roll on here. Uh, you brought up just this idea of some of these other schools that are now a new part of the conversation. Obviously TCU is a good example. Uh, this is that big weekend, Brady. This is when the TCUs get to sort of stake that claim. Now TCU's, all beat up. They lost another guy this week. Uh, you know, they, they've, they've got Oklahoma and Oklahoma is probably one B as far as hot teams right now. You know, obviously Alabama is playing as good as anyone. Oklahoma is good as they looked against Baylor. They've now got TCU. So this is where some of that separation, not separation Sunday, I guess separation Saturday starts to happen. The big 12 gets a lot of games. It gets the TCU traveling to Oklahoma. You get Baylor traveling to Oklahoma state. So we know that there's going to be movement around the peripherals of this, of this top four of this crew of those four teams. Somebody blows up, has just an exceptional game. Is is anything that happens in either of those two contests enough to move somebody into the four after this week? I think Oklahoma's on the verge, and and you look at the the route they have to go, right? You're talking about playing the number 18 team in the country in TCU this week, and that'll be an easier task than I think uh, most people realize because they'll probably be without quarterback Trevon Boykin. You know, Matt, I did that game last week, uh, TCU versus Kansas, and surprisingly, TCU was only able to come away with a six-point win. Now, that was in part because Boykin got hurt in the second or third series of the game, then TCU went to backup quarterback Bram Kohlhausen, and then they actually went to that third-string quarterback, Foster Sawyer, who I believe will actually start in this game if Boykin isn't healthy enough to actually go. On okay, top of sorry this, to inter- we just got new. I was sorry, sorry to interrupt. I'm I, sorry to interrupt. I, I really am interested in that point. So I had heard uh, – I think it was maybe Gary Patterson saying that he expected Boykin to play, and I, do you know if he's been practicing, or is this just a game-time decision kind of deal? I think it's a game-time decision. And let me just go into this. So Boykin gets hurt in the very first series. He rolled out to his left. He he came down on on the ground awkwardly as he got hit after he threw. Tried to tough it out the next series. Ended up then coming off the field and then going into the locker room. And that was pretty much it. Now, he did come out for the rest of the game and and watch. But there's no point in time in which he was going to go back into the game. And then right after the game, Gary Patterson was – uh, quoted as saying that he was going to be able to play next week. And, <laughs> right, and how do you know? Saying, I, right. How can you say that considering you were just in a dogfight losing to a winless right. team where you needed Boykin because there's a very strong chance that they were actually going to lose that game the way they were playing. Absolutely. I mean, Bram Kohlhausen came in, he threw a pick. They put in their third string quarterback, Foster Sawyer, who ended up leading a game winning drive. But really, if not for running back Aaron Green, there's no chance that they actually win that game. Now we get news today that they actually lost wide receiver Josh Dotson, who is by far and away their number one targeted wide receiver. He's had an outstanding year. He was actually one catch away from setting the career school record for receptions, which is pretty unfortunate considering um, he'll most likely go to the NFL after this year. But just had a remarkable season. And if they don't have Dotson and they don't have Boykin, look, these two guys have carried this team. I, I did the key, uh, Texas, Texas Tech game earlier this season when they essentially, um, you know, beat Texas Tech just those two alone. I think Dotson had like 18 receptions, 200 and some yards, and a couple of touchdown receptions. But if they don't have those two, there's no chance they'll be able to compete with Oklahoma. 
Okay. Well, and that's, you know, that's sort of your heavy hitters in the 12, those two big games. Uh, heading over to the Big Ten, it's, it's, it's an unusual situation where there are maybe half a dozen really big games this week. The Big Ten has theirs, having Michigan State and Ohio State square off, and that's huge because someone's going to have to win that East, and uh, clearly whoever comes out of that is sort of in the driver's seat. But it's interesting to me that that game is happening concurrently without on the West Coast of so the Pac-12. If the Pac-12, you've got Oregon and USC facing off in what is relatively a, kind of a game that won't matter now for the national scene. So I, it's interesting how how much has changed, I guess, in just the 12 months because the Pac has beat each other up a little bit. USC ends up not being quite the team we thought. Uh, Oregon takes a step back early in the season, seems to be surging a little bit now, but it's a game that's a little off the map, although it's two of the heaviest hitters in all of recruiting. If we're targeting a recruiting conversation tomorrow morning, it's 2016. Oregon and USC are right up at the top there, and Ohio State maybe more so than Michigan State as well. So maybe from even just a recruiting standpoint, this is a huge weekend in college football. Yeah, well, USC's first task is going to be to find a head coach. I mean, it's Clay Held right, right now. Is right. How do you do that? Is, is he going to be the guy? Is he going to be able to actually, um, you know, maintain some of that uh, tradition uh, that USC has been able to kind of have or embody the past few years? Uh, and is he going to be able to continue to recruit? Uh, but, yeah, you talked about that particular matchup. You know, two teams that actually kind of found their way back up into the top 25 after having somewhat of disappointing seasons. But, you know, look, I think in Oregon's case, they relied on a quarterback who literally got there in camp in Vernon Adams, right? He transferred from Eastern Washington. Uh, he's trying to learn a system that I don't care how simplified any collegiate system is anymore. Once you try to put a quarterback line center with all these fast moving parts, he needs some time to be able to settle in. And the unfortunate part for Vernon Adams is he broke his right index finger in that Michigan State game, and he wasn't really able to be effective. And then they kind of went through this sputtering pattern of trying to play him, but also trying to play back at quarterback Jeff Lockey. Look, now we're able to see what Vernon Adams is capable of doing. It looks like his finger's healed up. He had a really impressive performance versus Stanford. Royce Freeman's been arguably the best running back in the Pac-12, considering he's leading them in rushing yards right now. So Oregon looks legit. Unfortunately, it's just a few too many weeks too late. They really needed to kind of beat right. this team uh, starting week one. As far as USC goes, they've battled a ton of different things going on. Obviously, a bunch of injuries as well, not only on their offensive line, but also defensively. Uh, but you're starting to see some of that recruiting really come into play and some, some uh, sophomores and true freshmen really step up. But, look, when we're talking about the matchup of Ohio State-Michigan State, I think one of the uh, most interesting things about this matchup is, you know, Ohio State's one of the better rushing teams. They've relied heavily on Ezekiel Elliott. And Michigan State's been one of the better rush defenses in college football. When you look at them, they're 18th in the country right now. But on the flip side of that, Michigan State's a team that's really missing running back Jeremy Langford. Jeremy Langford's now with the Chicago Bears. He actually filled in very well last week for Matt Forte. Uh, helping, <laughs> I'm glad helping you brought Bears that up. Yeah. Went over the Rams. Um, but, but they're going to need that. They're going to need some balance because quarterback Connor Cook got banged up last week versus Maryland. Played, played very poorly. I think it was a lot. A lot of that had to do with the injury um, to his shoulder. And then backup quarterback Tyler O'Connor came in. So as far as this week goes, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a little bit more of Tyler O'Connor if Connor Cook's not healed up by then. Um, but you've also got to understand that the psyche of any quarterback, right, who's about ready to go out for the draft, this is that big matchup that every NFL yes. scout wants to see, how he performs and if he can play tough and if he can battle through it. So you better know that Connor Cook realizes that as well. 
and he's going to do everything he can to play in this game and play to the best of his ability. Yeah, I wonder that as well because he sort of sits in that realm of beat up but not not injured. Oh, I don't even know if injury and hurt or whatever that whole thing is. And I, I want to see more of him. I've really liked watching him grow over the last several years. I wanted Connor to have a nice senior season. There's plenty that's gone well for him, but there's been some bumps as well. And you're right. A lot of this becomes sort of positioning, unfortunately, where your team's going after a title, um, a Big Ten title at least, and and still sort of in the conversation for the playoff. But uh, that's something definitely to keep an eye on. I like that you also brought up the point about Jeremy Langford. I mean, Michigan State has become a factory, and I think that's a big deal for them because they're usually sort of second sister. You know, it's, it's Michigan and Ohio State clamoring for the top recruits. Penn State will sort of, you know, nose in there and grab a guy or two. Even you know they usually sit more. Even Nebraska sits usually ahead. If 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 it's a if it's a Nebraska or Michigan State question, a lot of times Nebraska will get that guy. Iowa sits closer to where Michigan State is, where it's sort of a I'm not going there, so I'll go there kind of thing. But you look at guys like Le'Veon Bell, you got Jeremy Langford. Now these guys are are really overlooked athletes that come out. They don't maybe get testing and grading so high but as soon as you get them on a football that's a field good lord these are exceptional players so it's really a i think a, a stage for a lot of those michigan state athletes Shalik calhoun you know some of the, these guys want to go out there and just show what they can do maybe even improve draft stock because they're playing against guys on ohio state that many consider some of your top potential first and second round draft picks in the upcoming years so you get to have that sort of game tape as a player it's like hey i'm going against a guy here that everyone projects as a top 15 pick and I'm, I'm beating him you know that kind of thing so it, it's a good little uh it's a good little stage for those guys to sort of explore what they can do you, you think you can do it and you get to go out and show people as well so one last little thought I wanted to hit on here as we sort of head to the exit but uh with this going on and again I'm always sort of talking about the peripheral here because there's stuff going around the edges of that top four I was there not much is going to happen. They play Purdue this week. They can only hurt themselves by maybe having an embarrassing performance. And, you know, maybe like a TCU guy in a game where they have to fight with a team that you shouldn't. And maybe they'll lose some votes and move back. Uh, but if for some reason Michigan State and Ohio State play to a really close game, Michigan State nudges Ohio State potentially. You could be in a situation where Michigan State moves past Iowa, you know, if Iowa struggles against Purdue. I think there are voters on the committee that are ready to knock them down at the first sign of, of dust. You know, if Iowa shows a chink, I think that's the one team that sits out there that a lot of people want to see them beat someone really good, and it just hasn't happened yet, although they've been really gutsy. Uh, moving down here to sort of finish this thing off, is there another game, another sort of situation in college football that might sit outside this playoff, but that if we're having this conversation three weeks from now and this thing is starting to finish up, you're saying, well, that was the game that really vaulted Team X six spots, four spots, something like that, and they, they snuck into the back of the conversation. You know, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. I, I can think of the one significant win for Oklahoma that would give them a lot of leeway um, that happened earlier on in the season. It was really, if I'm not mistaken, a triple overtime win by Oklahoma in Knoxville, Tennessee, that I think right. is a pretty solid non-conference win. It was a really good win in the context of you know, how Oklahoma was able to come back and considering they weren't the team then that they are now, if you look at the way they're playing. Um, and I think that particular match of that particular game could give them enough brownie points if they can run through TCU, if they run through Oklahoma State, as far as the last game of the season, could give them enough weight 
to jump into that number four spot, especially considering Stanford lost last week versus Oregon. And now that, that you know, Pac-12 opponent doesn't look quite as good to Notre Dame sitting on the number four spot, but um, that would be the one game that kind of sticks out in my mind of, you know, look, this was a, a game that I think gave uh, Oklahoma a lot of credit in a lot of the viewers' eyes for a team that went on the road, a night game. I've been there before, Matt. It's not easy to win in that environment. It's That's hundred and some thousand it's people. It and, is. And yes. it's, it's incredibly difficult. When you're talking about a team that came back from, I think, a 17-point deficit to take it in a triple overtime and get a win, um, that's going to bode well for them, even though Tennessee's not having the best year in the SEC. Well, I didn't mean for that to come off like an ambush. I should have. I, I was trying to lead you down the road of North Carolina because I know you wrote about this week. I'm sorry that it, it, I, maybe I, I sent us down a rabbit hole there a little bit, but you did write about in your in your college football breakdown this week this idea that North Carolina. I'm not. I don't think you were making the argument necessarily, and I, I'm I'm still having a hard time seeing how it could clarify to where they could get in unless they just simply won the ACC championship game. But they kind of sit now at. 17 a matchup with Virginia Tech this week which shouldn't you know that's not the kind of win that's going to prompt unless it's by 50 points or something to you know to prompt a four or six spot move but they look to have uh, enough uh, doable hurdles but that would be impressive enough to where they can linger around maybe seven maybe eight maybe six when this is all said and done and be one of those teams that can, can be a bit of an adjutant to those guys that sit in the top four is that fair look Matt, yeah, I think it's fair, and, I, and I'll, I'll say this much. I think if North Carolina can win at Virginia Tech, at NC State, I guarantee you see them at number 10 by the time they're playing in the ACC championship versus Clemson. And if Clemson right. still won in their 10, I don't, I don't know that there's any chance they jump high enough to get in that number four, but I think you're right. They, they jump up to seven, they jump up to six, and you basically put on the fact that that loss to South Carolina to begin the season it's kind of staring them All in the right. face. And even though it was early on and they continue to build off of that, they just haven't played, uh, I guess, the toughest strength of schedule. And unfortunately, right. they're, they're, that one loss is really going to penalize them heavily considering how bad South Carolina struggled this season. No, that's a great point. And I, I guess I just wondered what what needed to be the launching pad point. Now, what how high would you have to go for a win over Clemson and the ACC to vault you into the four or to vault you right on the back edge of the four where you sit where you're Baylor and you're the team that's bitching at five, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So I, I it'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to watch. Yeah, the biggest jump we've seen, I think, is like seven spots. And, and I want right. to say that that happened with uh, one of the big 12 teams. But beyond that, okay. uh, I, I don't know that that's going to be possible. In particular, for a UNC team, again, that's that's, that's in the very right. last week of the rankings. I mean, maybe if they beat a Clemson, maybe they somehow jump up in that spot. Who knows if a bunch of other teams ahead of them lose. All righty. Well, hey, man, uh, it'll be fun to watch this weekend. I think there's going to be some movement we'll have a ton to talk about next week. You working this weekend? I am. I'll actually be out uh, back in the Pac-12. I'm doing UCLA at Utah. So really two teams that, you know, need this particular win if they want to try to win the Pac-12 South and have a shot for the Pac-12 championship. Wow, so close. That's two teams that were on the cusp, and Utah just just let it go. But uh, still going to be a very competitive game. So that'll be a fun one. I've got UMass and uh, Miami of Ohio. Barn burner. Uh, <laughs> so we're going to enjoy that as don't, well, hey, though. Don't, don't sleep on the Redbirds, the Matt. They're very capable, man. Well, they, it's one of the cooler situations in college football, sort of researching these guys and talking to the coach today. Uh, they are – 
at any one moment, you can have eight freshmen on the field on their offensive side of the ball. I've never seen anything like this in college football. They had a major pro, and I mean, not a power five, but a, but, a, but a BCS program. They were out there on the field in competitive games against other MAC teams with some, usually six, sometimes seven, and in certain packages, eight freshmen. That's a pretty incredible <laughs> thing. So it's one of those rebuilds where you say, you know what, I could have gone and got 20 transfers and tried to squeeze out that you know, an extra two or three or four wins and have the job security, or I can do a straight teardown job. And he just said, I'm going to rip it up. I'm going to play a bunch of freshmen and three years from now, I'm going to have a really good school. It's Coach Martin, if not, I'm not mistaken, right? He actually from Notre Dame. Dame. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right, man. Have a great week, buddy. See you. Well, and that's unfortunately all we have for this week's show. So much stuff to cover across the country and fit into the short amount of time we have. Thank you so much for listening to the Football by Football podcast. As always, this FBF podcast can be found for streaming or download on footballbyfootball.com or blogtalkradio.com. You can download the FBF podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on the TuneIn radio app. For daily insightful stuff from guys like Brady, myself, and all the other writers at FBF, make sure to check out the footballbyfootball.com Facebook page and give us a follow if on Twitter at FB by FB. See you next time. Thanks for listening to the Football by Football podcast. Football insight by football players. Hi, Lucky. Hi, Dusty. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned. Good night, Ned.